0: Hello and welcome to the S yes Code podcast. Today we have a guest, uh, John Kodamal, CTO and co-founder of Launch Darkly. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, John. Really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it's excellent. Um, so, just to get uh, get right into it, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and what Launch Darkly is and why uh, you know why we're here.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm John. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Launch Darkly. Um, I started LaunchDarkly about eight years ago with my co-founder, Edith Harbaugh. Um, just summarizing like kind of my career arc in uh, in, in in a few short words, uh, I've kind of always been uh, throughout my career uh, building things for developers. So uh, prior to LaunchDarkly, I was at Atlassian for a chunk of time. Um, prior to that, I, I did a PhD in programming languages uh, at Berkeley. So. Uh, I was focused back then uh, in the earliest days, my my research was on finding defects in software automatically through like novel type systems and other funky techniques. Um, And so uh, my career arc, I've kind of always been interested in trying to figure out how to make developers' lives better, whether that be through like paradigm shifts, new programming languages, um, or through capabilities like uh, what LaunchDarkly is today for developers, helping Developers separate deployment from release and minimize the risk around uh, the changes that they're shipping to production. So, can you tell me
0: exactly what is LaunchDarkly? Um, I spent some time, you know, going through your website. Uh, I'm familiar with the product, but not everybody who's listening uh, might be familiar. It looks like there's a lot of different products that kind of all together make up LaunchDarkly. Can you tell me, you know, kind of the the high level what is it and kind of how you distinguish the different components?
1: Yeah. So um LaunchDarkly is a it's a platform that's designed to help developers and product delivery teams leverage feature flags to ship software faster and that helps you reduce risk, run experiments, measure the impact of the changes that you're making around every change that you're making. Um and I guess from a from a from a component perspective or sort of like from a jobs to be done perspective sure. um usually the the first thing people want to do with something like LaunchDarkly is use this for canary releases or kill switches. So that's like the most fundamental use case is being able to minimize risk around the changes that they're shipping in production by, uh, you know, taking a a feature flag change and saying, okay, I'm going to roll this out, but gradually to Mm -hmm. a small percentage of my traffic or a targeted cohort of people. Interestingly, once you have that kind of like foundational, like mechanism in place everywhere, you sort of naturally have a control group and an experiment group. And that mm-hmm. helps you run things like an A-B testing uh, uh, program on top of feature flags. Um, but it also, the, the, for, the, core, the core feature flagging capability also unlocks additional use cases. So you can think about using flags for long-term control. So what if I want to have uh, different plans with different access to different features? So an entitlements use case. Or I want to do like behavioral targeting. So I have a list of, you know, 20,000 people that I know have taken some action Um, Like maybe uh, clicked on a transactional email, or um, you know, engaged highly engaged with with a particular ad, and I want to target them with some experience. I can do that with feature flags too.
0: Mm -hmm. So tell me about the first time. So this for me, uh, I'm a software developer as well, and I remember um, when I first saw a canary release. uh, We called it dark shipping, right? Yes. Um, And the first time I saw that, I was just blown away. I had gone through an entire career in software development up to that point. And I had never seen that done before in production. And the application I was working on was used by millions of people. And it was pretty, pretty amazing that I'd gotten that far. I'd gone through university, I'd studied computer science, I'd worked on multiple production teams, I had never seen that. Where did you first come across, you know, the, the technique of doing, you know, canary rollouts and dark shipping and feature flagging? Um, and how did that you know, impact you when you found that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh it's probably back in my days at Atlassian. So, uh you know, we're going back circa 2010, 2012 or so. Mm-hmm. Um and uh we had an internal platform for doing feature flags. And it was nothing nearly as slick as what LaunchDarkly is today, but you got the the idea mm-hmm. of the power that that could come with this. Um and then we had exposure to platforms like Optimizely that sort of like seemed to do what uh, mechanically what a feature flag does, but targeted towards an entirely different use case. And so mm-hmm. th- those were kind of some of my first exposures. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that is so exciting about LaunchDarkly, when it, when a developer today who has never experienced uh, a canary rollout uses LaunchDarkly, it, it is kind of like a magical thing going on there. Like you integrate it into your application. It's an SDK. We're a SaaS platform, so you haven't deployed anything in your own infrastructure, and, uh, you know, let's say you're on a mobile app or a website and you, like, hit the kill switch on the Launch Sharkly dashboard and instantaneously your application update, the product experience changes. That is, like, a truly magical feeling. Uh, and it's something that took a lot of technique and uh, or, uh, technology and uh, sophistication to unlock. But, like, once it's there, uh, it, it feels pretty magical to me, even when I see it today in our demos.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, ever since I had that first experience using feature flagging, you know every person i've i spent a lot of time you know helping people getting the software uh you know learn you know advance their careers and things like that and i'm always showing them you know you got to use feature flags it's it's a game changer um so ever since ever since then i've just loved it um what makes it so difficult to implement uh something like feature flags like you know why don't i just put an if else you know in my in my code and just branch in production like wh- why do i need a feature flagging tool? What makes this so difficult?
1: You know, we, we get that question a lot. Uh, a lot of people sort of think like, well, this is just like a database table. Like, why do I need anything, uh, an external system, a SaaS provider, a platform for doing this? And um, one of the things that I always point out is that, you know, mechanically, uh, the very, very basic mechanism of, feature, of a feature flag is fairly simple. You can grab an open source library, you can roll your own but once you elevate this into a practice, something that all the developers within your team are doing, you need a lot more support. Um, you need governance. You need role-based access controls. You need a collaboration platform where people can see the changes that other people are enacting on or, or proposing to change. You need things like workflows and automation so that you can build like a scalable practice around feature management. Because um, you know, if you have the very basic thing, oftentimes what happens is like it's locked down. Only the the developers can see it. The PMs don't even have a UI to work with, or you're afraid to roll it out more broadly because it's so powerful and you don't have permission systems uh, uh, set up, or you're afraid to use it at scale because you're not really sure if it can handle the scale of your platform. And we get that a lot with like teams that are shipping, you know, mobile apps to, to tens of millions or hundreds of millions of end users. It's sort of like, that's actually a, a fairly significant load that you put upon the feature flagging system. And so what happens if that goes down or can't scale to, to the needs? So it's a combination of all of those things. It's like you need a collaboration platform, a UI to make it easy for everybody to use. You need governance. You need change management. Um, and then you need scalability and you put those all together and it's like, what are you going to do? Build that all yourself. Um, that turns out to be, you know, several developers, maybe even an entire team of developers depending on how sophisticated your needs are for, you know, a year or more. Um, and then you look at that and you compare it to the cost of launch directly, and we start coming out significantly ahead in that calculus.
0: Sure. And also, I mean, there's just something to be said for not having to deal with it, right? Like, oh, sure, yeah. there's the cost benefit as well, but the less things that your team has to manage, the better. Or I should say, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd much rather depend on someone who is an expert at this particular thing than have to invent it in-house again. What kind of advantages do you see from you know, deploying LaunchDarkly as a SaaS? So I also worked on a, a system where we had an in-house uh, feature flagging system that was kind of a roll your own. We eventually open sourced the product. Um, but you know, I think that there's probably some some really good benefits to you know not having to run that infrastructure internally. So how how is that shaken out for you?
1: Yeah, it's a question that comes up sometimes. Some people assume that, okay, this is a piece of infrastructure. It should be deployed in my in my cloud environment like any other piece of infrastructure. It turns out with the right architectural design, um, you can absolutely have this managed as a SaaS and not have that uh, cause any kind of challenge for you. Um, so from like a latency perspective or redundancy perspective, we have architected the system so that the SaaS-based nature of it um has little negative impact or no negative impact on, upon you as a customer. And we do that through providing multiple layers of redundancy all the way down to like a microservice that you can deploy in your own infrastructure that will, um, that will serve to protect you in case there's some kind of like network partition or, um, you know, an outage of some kind on launch Sharkley's end. Mm-hmm. From our perspective. This helps us massively because we can, we can do all the things you can do with a SaaS. You can move quickly, you can iterate quickly, and you're not really dealing with legacy customers um, that have old versions of your software deployed. It also means that we can scale the system to all of our customer base um, mm-hmm. as necessary versus like relying on the customer and giving them sort of like scalability guidelines and forcing them to be responsible for scaling up their infrastructure. It's actually kind of a hard problem to run this stuff at scale, so we're happy to do it for you. We have, you know, built up an enormous amount of expertise in scaling our systems to meet customer demand.
0: It sounded like you went ahead and answered one of my questions for me, but I want to go into a bit more detail. Um, you mentioned that you have a microservice inside uh, an optional microservice inside the customer's infrastructure. Um, I was going to ask about like kind of what kind of fail safes do you have if my app can't connect to the LaunchDarkly SaaS, um, can you talk a little bit more in detail about kind of the architecture decision and like how that works? Because, you know, I would imagine that I build an application, I'm relying on LaunchDarkly SaaS for, you know, governance and change management and a nice UI and all that stuff for my team. And for a period of, let's say, you know, 10 minutes, um, my data center can't contact the LaunchDarkly data center, I can't do the feature uh, checking that I need to do. Um, I definitely don't want my system to fail as an outage uh, in that case. So what are you doing and how does that system work?
1: Yeah, there are multiple approaches here. And I would say foundationally, the most important one is uh, a feature flag request in your code. So the the actual API call or SDK call that says, here's a piece of code. You know, uh, uh, should I go down this way or should I go down that way? That feature flag function call uh, has no... uh, uh, latency; it ha- it doesn't talk to any external network or anything, uh, and that's kind of that's kind of essential. That means that okay. um, the state is delivered to your application, the feature flagging state uh, is delivered to your application, and that sits in memory or a persistent store on your end. And our SDKs are basically like a on, on the server side, at least they're like a small interpreter that reads through the the rules for that feature flag evaluates it against the current user context and spits out an answer. And it does that with no IO overhead asynchronously, asynchronously, a few things are happening. Like we're delivering flag changes. So like if you change anything on your dashboard, we deliver that change to your infrastructure. We also do eventing. So we give you telemetry back into, you know, what events were sent, which variation of, of each flag was sent to each was, was delivered to each user. We do all that asynchronously. So we're not impacting the flow, but kind of like the, the core foundational thing, no IO um, on a feature flag request. And then from there we have layers of redundancy, including like the microservice that we talked about. We have an encode default. So like, um, you know, by default right now, if you can't connect to launch darkly, your application will serve the last known good state of the feature mm-hmm. flag, which is, which is what you want. But let's say you couldn't even bootstrap that state. You can then fall back to an encode, uh, default. So we've kind of thought through all the different options and given as many opportunities for you to, to, to fall back in case there's something going on with the LaunchDarkly service.
0: I really like the way of, uh, you know, synchronizing the state and then after the fact, you know, publishing changes to it so that your app's not having any network interaction. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the design of, um, of LaunchDarkly architecture and the boundaries of the system. So what would you say are kind of the the boundaries of launch darkly what's in what's out how do you decide what features you're going to uh you know kind of roll into the product or or not include do you have a clean kind of break that says this is what we do and this is kind of like where the line is
1: yeah i would say there's there's basically like Five pieces of the system. There's the SDKs. They, those are the open source components that you embed into your own application. And that that is doing the sort of like the, the mechanics of the feature flagging um, on the customer's end. We have APIs. So we're a developer first platform. That means everything can and can be API driven. So any interaction with the product can be driven through APIs. We have a control plane. So if you want to, obviously, uh, if you want to use the UI, it's there for you. Uh, we also do a massive amount of um, data ingestion. So all the events that come out of the SDKs whenever you request feature flags, that gets sent back to this data pipeline that we have on mm-hmm. our end. Um, that thing is pretty massive. It does uh, 16 million or so requests per second with about 150 terabytes of daily data ingest. Uh, so that's kind of gives you a sense of the scale that we're operating under um and the f- fifth piece of the platform is a set of integrations so we integrate with tons of developer tools things like ides um developer platforms like github um we have integrations with like terraform and and a bunch of other things the 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 sorts of things that you would expect any great developer tool to to integrate with that's kind of how i think about partitioning the platform and from an arch- architecture perspective you can kind of like create diagrams around each of those components in isolation
0: mm-hmm. okay and then um as a new developer coming on to launch directly, um, I'm integrating, you know, the feature flagging into my application. What, what have you done for the developer experience in, in that case? Like, how, how does the developer get up and running for the first time? And what, what are you doing for them to help make it easier?
1: I think the most important piece of that is ensuring that if you just looked at the, the SDK and, like, tried to use it it would it should make sense to you without any documentation like it should be incredibly easy to understand um, for the basic use case and it is i mean um you can boil LaunchDarkly's sdks down to basically like a single function call uh which is you know a request for a feature flag give me the flag key give me the user context or other context um and the default variation what should serve if, if that flag doesn't exist for example and the most important thing I think for, for a developer interaction perspective is to keep things simple. Um, and we focus really, really hard on making that or on making the simple things, the easy things easy with Launch Sharkly. So, um, you know, you talked about how at the surface feature flagging feels like such a simple thing. You need yeah. to kind of retain that core no matter what you do. And that, that's been very essential to our, to our process.
0: So when you're keeping it simple. You know, say, for example, I pull up a feature flag and I request, you know, should this feature be enabled or not? What are you hiding from the developer? You know, I, I think one of the best things about a good API or a good SDK is how much complexity can it hide? How many features, like how much value am I getting for not having to know about it at all? So yeah. what are some of the biggest things that you're hiding there?
1: We are hiding a ton. Oh, man, we are hiding. Okay, so on the server side, we are hiding... um uh, the flag delivery mechanism. So the way that updates get delivered to your system, that's done through a, a push-based mechanism using server-sent events. At any given time, there are about like 20 million uh, devices connected, 20 to 40 million devices connected to us getting these push, uh, these changes pushed over the wire. We're hiding all of that complexity to you, um, from you. We're hiding the the sort of like in-memory evaluation from you. You're not having to, to worry about any of that. There's, um, Very few leaky abstractions in this. I would say uh, the one that kind of like bites people at times is the one that we can't really hide completely is um, targeting at scale. So if you try to, the the best way to use Launch Sharkly is to give us rules and we'll make decisions based on those rules. So like if you're in, uh, if the end user context is based in California, serve true, right? That's like one kind of rule that you could put in. If instead you went to your CRM or something like that as and like produced mm-hmm. me a list of like 400,000 users of yours that yep. are in California and then uploaded a CSV of 400,000 users to me, that's a lot harder. I, I like that's a bit of a leaky. Abstract. I can't make that uh, work seamlessly. We've figured out a way to actually support that use case, but it requires um, it requires you to actually use a new capability on our side. And you have mm-hmm. to know certain things about that, like. Uh, you have to have the Shark, the Relay Proxy, the Microservice installed on your end. And there's a little bit of additional latency with a call like that. Because otherwise, I mean, the, the the flag state is you sort of and gather. And you pre-calculate it or do you do, you do it on the fly? Uh, when, when you send us rules, we, we, we do it on the fly, right? Yeah. When, you, when you pre-calculate it on your end and just give us the answer, like the 400,000 users, now we have to store that in memory. And at yeah. some point, that's, that's bad, Pre- right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we we have a mechanism where you're sort of like, okay, if you have you know ten ten thousand to a hundred million users that you pre-calculated on your end, we can make that work with our system through this capability that we released called Big Segments, um, which is what it is. It's like a big segment of users or, or a, a segment of users <laughs> big segment. I love it. Yeah. Um, but but if you're not using that capability, then um, then you're gonna create this enormous feature flag payload that's, that's kind of going to be problematic.
0: So I wanted to follow up on the push base uh, mechanism you were talking about. It sounded pretty interesting to me. Let's say I have an iOS application that I've distributed to my users and I'm using LaunchDarkly for feature flagging. Are each one of those client applications in real time getting push updates when I turn on a feature flag if they're you know active and running?
1: They are, um, but we do something really interesting on the client side that that is uh, pretty pretty unique, which is that, we actually do the computation uh, at the edge and then push the results to the clients. So for mobile clients. So we basically okay. view like mobile and browser clients as untrusted. So, you know, the, on the server side, we pass the entire rule chain over. So like if, if you're in California, you get this feature. If you're not in California, you don't get this feature, right? We can, we basically deliver a JSON encor- encoded version of that rule to, to, to server side SDKs and they do the evaluation in the backend. But on the client side, uh, somebody could actually like inspect the rules and, uh, that would be like, that would be a leak of your business logic, right? Uh, yep. the, the flag targeting. So what we do is we have a tra- an edge transformation layer that will actually do the flag evaluation and then push fan, do the fan out and push the results out to each of those clients in real time. I see. And, um, at peak, we have, I talked about some numbers before. I think we have some. Like our 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 absolute peak is something in like the fifty million plus concurrent mobile devices uh, oh, wow. range, um, and some of those there's you know there's individual clients with like millions of, of connected devices, and so you change a flag on your dashboard, we have like uh you know millions of flag evaluations to do and deliver in near real time, which is quite a quite a technical challenge.
0: I see sometimes on um, on various forums where people will reverse engineer. Um, some kind of feature flagging software the developer has implemented. Um, how do you handle security of flags? Say, for example, I dark ship a new dashboard that I don't want customers to see until I'm totally sure and I have a small beta group using it. Um, and I'm doing client-side you know, flagging. Is there any additional security layer in here that you're helping developers? I, I know if they do it the wrong way, they're going to do it the wrong way. But are you helping them to not make those wrong decisions so that, you know... Uh, a tinkerer can't just turn things on that they don't want them to be on.
1: We can do that to some degree. Um, you know, for example, on the, on the client side, like the delivery model that I describe prevents you from sort of like sharing uh, the business logic behind a flag roll, and that's critically important. Um, but at the end of the day, if, like, if you're doing this in JavaScript and you have the source code, right, you have the code of the new feature, right? Even if you weren't like feature flagging it, right, you could inline the word true into that conditional. and. Sure. And kind of off you'd go. So like short of that, yeah, we we do what we can. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I guess the two things that are exposed are like the code on client side is going to be exposed, at least on browser, mm-hmm. um, as well as like the flag key. So, sure. you know, if you're Twitter and you have a feature flag that says like 280 character limit test, right, as a feature flag, then you're kind of revealing to people what that is. And so maybe obfuscate your keys as well. <laughs> um, we, don't, we don't really give you much guidance on that front.
0: Okay. Um, so we talked about how you know, both of us have experienced this as kind of an internal tool um, that we've seen before. I would imagine there are lots of people who have built an internal tool that does exactly this. What would you say to somebody now who is you know, evaluating to either use an off-the-shelf solution like LaunchDarkly or roll their own or, or use an open source project or something to that effect? What would you say to them if they're deciding to basically just implement their own flagging system?
1: Yeah, I would. I would encourage them to sort of do all the standard build versus buy thinking, right? Like how much is, how much of your how much time is this really going to take your developers, and how much your developers cost. But also to think really hard about what the system looks like two, three years down the line uh, when you scale it within your organization. Presumably, if you're building something like this you think it's an important capability for, for your organization to mm-hmm. have. And take that to its logical conclusion. That means that every developer on your team is probably going to be using it. Uh, it means that you're using it on every piece of your stack. So all the different languages that you happen to be using within your organization. One other thing that I think people underestimate is the actual set of use cases that this maps to. So usually when you build your own one of these things, you have an initial use case in mind, like, man, we, ne- we really need to be able to kill switch bad changes. But then what people don't realize is downstream, you know, once you built that thing, people are going to come calling to you for additional use cases like experimentation. A PM is going to have an early access program that they want to run through this. And you probably wouldn't have architected the system to handle all of those use cases and handle that influx of additional users. And we've thought of all of that. So, those things together, think about your immediate need but, and, and the cost of building a solution to those immediate needs. But also like, what does this look like in its end state if you're successful and can you truly support and build to all of those use cases? I've never actually encountered a company that has uh, built a, a sophisticated internal system that has anticipated all of those needs. Usually the most sophisticated internal tools that I've run into, there's not actually one platform within those companies. There's four or five. Uh, and they all serve different needs there's an entitlements flagging system uh there's a, an experimentation system which is distinct from the canary release system and it's a, an enormous pain in those organizations to have to deal with like answering simple questions like did the user get this or not?" because you have to look at four or five different systems and it's probably implemented four or five different ways in in code, which is very frustrating for developers as well.
0: Yeah, I think the A-B testing uh, use case is really interesting because it has a lot of similarities but also a lot of differences. You know, you want to be able to collect all the data to see which one's winning. Um, We also had this thing um, that we used for experimentation on new code paths for, like, performance optimization. So we would actually run both sides uh, of the A-B test at the same time and compare results to see what was the runtime of each path and also were the results the same. And so we could see, for example, if... uh, You know, the control case was 10 times slower, but, you know, the optimization we put in might not always get the same results. We weren't going to roll that out until we knew from empirical evidence. Um, And, you know, that wasn't something that was anticipated early on. That was something we had to kind of bolt on after the fact. And yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what you can do with this stuff, but it's very, very difficult. And there were not one or two people building that. There was an entire team, you know, so... Um, I, I definitely see how you could have a lot of different use cases for, for this stuff. Um, yeah, that's,
1: that's like a very familiar story.
0: <laughs> so what I wanted to ask you about next was kind of the developer experience. And this is the S yes Code podcast. And kind of the idea behind this podcast is that as a developer, I just really want to see more tools that are built at a higher level of abstraction. I don't want to have to think about the intricate details. You know, what data structure are we using here? What algorithm are we using? I want to know, I have a feature flag is the flag on or off right I want to think at this higher level uh, of abstraction and when it comes to launch darkly and how developers integrate with your platform I wanted to know you know you kind of told me the big sections the SDK API control plane data ingestion integration but within my code so whether I'm you know using uh, you know an iOS app or a server side you know language when I'm using your SDK what are the top level primitives that I'm playing with and how do you get to that design, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, the So the first thing that you do when you use a LaunchDarkly SDK is you initialize a client, a LaunchDarkly client. Um, for various reasons, that thing has to be a singleton um, mm-hmm. because it has some internal state that we hide from from you as a developer. Um, once that that is instantiated, and basically the instantiation is simple. It's basically just, you know, uh, point to LaunchDarkly, put your credentials in there, your, your API key, uh, probably abstracted away into a configuration file somewhere. And, and off you go. There's some there's some simple configuration parameters. And then from there, you can use that singleton and you can request feature flags. That's the, the, the core primitive is, you know, here's a feature flag. Um, there's one, uh, the, a feature flag call has a, a few pieces of information. It has a flag key, which is basically like a string identifying the feature flag. And it has a, what is right now a, a, an LD user object, the launch directly user object. And we're actually, uh, there's a roadmap item that we're launching soon, soon. That's quite exciting that I'm hoping to talk about at some point. Um, but we're changing that into a, a more broader context topic, but it basically that is the information about the current feature flag request, who's requesting it and under what context that is used for discriminating, uh, in the rule engine. So, uh, those things together, which feature flag and the context. That mm-hmm. is all you need to make it a feature flagging decision. And then mm-hmm. basically the only other piece of the SD, uh, SDK that the developer has to concern themselves with is the eventing. So you can also send metrics events back to LaunchDarkly and it can be for A-B testing or experimentation. Um, so you can send you know, the latency uh, involved in a particular uh, code path so that can be used for an A-B test um, uh, as an example or a conversion metric or something like that. Now you can also send that data via other mechanisms, but one of the, you can also, you can do it directly in our SDK if you want to do it at the code level.
0: Excellent. And with the, you know, when you're sending back events to launch Darkly, you said for for A-B testing or experimenting, what are some, you know, more concrete kind of use cases with like differentiating between A-B testing and experimenting? Like how might somebody put those uh, into use in their product?
1: Yeah, I think traditionally people think about a-B testing experimentation in terms of like optimizing a KPI or something like that. And you can absolutely do that with the LaunchDarkly platform. But we are also envisioning more operational use cases. Uh, so you spoke to this in, in sort of like experience that you had with your own homegrown system of sort of like a control path and a new code path and being able to measure latency, error rates, correctness around those things. I think we're, we're heavily invested in those sorts of use cases as well. So we want you, we want to push this notion of you attaching a metric to every single feature flag. And that metric can be, well, here's a new feature that's designed to optimize or uh, change the specific user behavior. But it can also be, I'm iterating on a change within my code and I want to make sure that I'm not slowing down my API um, or, um, or, you know, chewing up a ton of memory. And so you can send those metrics to us as well. And um, we're building more and more capabilities around supporting those use cases.
0: It sounds like the API or you know the SDK is relatively simple. There's not a whole lot of uh, you know kind of top level components. Um, what I would typically want to ask you about is how did you end up on that design? But it's it's really just very simple. Um, instead, I want to ask you how, you know, how do you make changes to that? Are you seeing as you're adding new features or adding new um, new abilities to launch Darkly that the way the user interacts in the SDK needs to expand. Like you kind of mentioned, you might be working on something around like the context, but like how are you managing keeping that very, very simple, but adding these experimenting features and adding the A-B AB
1: testing and other things? It's a challenge and it's a challenge for a few reasons. One of which is because we support something like 25 different SDKs. And so if there's a new capability that requires an SDK change, uh, like, for example, this new context stuff that I'll, I'll talk about, um, that takes, you know, we have to update that in like 25 different places. And the languages that we support are, you know, it's like everything from your, you know, your node, your Java, your JavaScript, um, the React, uh, Java, et cetera, all the way up to like Elixir, Haskell, Rust, mm-hmm. Roku. We have Roku SDKs. We have C SDKs. Like Roku, like the
0: TV set-top box?
1: Yeah, yeah, fun, fun <laughs> okay. story. Um, we're a completely cloud native company. We have a server closet in our office and the only machines in there are three Roku boxes because we cannot find any kind of integration testing service that will run on Roku boxes. There's no like CI for Roku apps? There's no, there's no <laughs> CI for Roku. In fact, I just got, there's a Slack message the other day that was like, hey, our, some of our integration tests are failing. The Rokus are not responding. Is someone in the office? Can you reboot the Roku source? That's Just some like, dedication, it's very, though. Yeah, it's very 1994 in that server room, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, so back to your original question. Yeah, it, it's, it's challenging. Um, fortunately, there are relatively few p- places where we have to make significant changes to our SDKs to support evolution of the platform. This context stuff is one of them. It's changing the fundamental API call. It's broadening it from this idea of you passing us a user as the context and the feature flagging decision being made around a user and it's expanding it to like arbitrary context so for example you can say i want to make a feature flagging decision not just on like the user that's involved in this request but maybe what organization they're a part of or uh, the request itself the request id uh, and parameters of the request or what machine what what infrastructure am i on like did i get routed to one of the boxes with the new Graviton hardware or am I on one of the older boxes with, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever, the AMD 64 uh, architecture. And so you can make decisions not just on who's a who who the end user is that's observing the, the flag change, but rather any parameter that might be interesting for you uh, to to experiment on.
0: I think that's just a, a classic programmer first thing that they do is center everything around the user or the user object and... Mm-hmm. I just see that all the time it's really great to be able to you know your example of like what hardware are you running on that's totally viable a totally valuable uh, way to be able to change your features or you know do some experimentation and uh, you know basing everything off the user doesn't doesn't make sense but it's it's what we always do
1: you know yeah um, it's, yeah it's like how
0: every app starts right
1: yeah that example is a great one because we we're actually we actually just did a migration of some of our uh, services into graviton architecture and we're evaluating, okay, we're, we're saving some money here because these are cheaper on a permanent basis, but if they're slower, then we might not see the savings we expect. So we sort mm-hmm. of have to treat that as a form of experiment where we make sure that uh, when the change goes out, or when we're shifting over to this new architecture, that we're actually not spending more on compute at the end of the day by, by being slower in servicing requests or requiring more CPU time.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit about your users and how you think about them. Um, who do you target with LaunchDarkly? Are you targeting, you know, kind of the end user developer? Are you targeting entire teams? And how do you think about the developer who's in the position where they need you right now? Um, and what do you do to reach them?
1: Yeah, we, our, our go-to-market motion, we, we address, um, we have a product-led motion, so we, we can focus on individual developers. And it's important for us to have individual developers that love our product. But we also in our sales motion, we're talking to you know Fortune 100 companies, enormous uh, companies that are thinking about transforming the way their teams develop software, and so we need messaging. We need to we need to speak to both personas: the individual developer as well as the executive. We need to demonstrate the value of Launch Sharkly to to both of those audiences. Um, so, you know, kind of the implicit assumption that I've made that I'll make explicit is uh, we're developer first. Um, So we, the product is, uh, the the core user of our product is the developer, but as organizations expand in their use of LaunchDarkly, we naturally graduate to other personas within an organization. Um, Mm -hmm. Other ones that are pretty critical to us are product managers uh, who want to do things like roll out their features to specific audiences or uh, or entitle uh, only a subset of their end user base to certain features. We also cater to DevOps engineers because of that, those use cases around making sure that um, you, know, you can remediate from an incident by flipping off a feature flag if necessary. Um, and then finally, data teams who are often critically involved in uh, experimentation programs or uh, want critical information from LaunchDarkly. I mean, at the end of the day, like, we have this enormous amount of data around how uh, our customers and users are experiencing their product.
0: Who got exposed
1: mm-hmm. to what feature when, and that data ends up being incredibly valuable to many organizations. They want to do things like dump it in their own data warehouses and do processing based on it. And so, data teams end up using LaunchDarkly as well uh, to consume that information.
0: And among the you know developer first audience, you know, as you get bigger and as the the companies using you know using your product get bigger, it's obvious that it goes to you know further and further um, you know kind of roles from the developer. You know, I can see a product manager saying, oh, it's great that our development team has this. Can you use it in this way or that way? Are there any use cases that you've come across, you know, from these different, um, different teams getting involved in this process that totally surprised you? You know, not just like an early access program or a specific, you know, dark ship or something like that, but something that was totally unexpected.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll sort of like um, start with like the root cause of why these things happen. At yep. the end of the day, LaunchDarkly is basically like a rules engine that sits inside your product. Um, and so you can do a lot with a rules engine. You can do a lot of things that I, maybe in some cases I would prefer (laughs) that customers didn't do. Um, some examples of that, um, you can use this as like a really bad internationalization platform, right? You can like you can use feature flag variations and do deliver different strings depending on locale, but like, that's an incredibly awful way. Like the, the product just isn't designed for that. So from a usability perspective, it's, it's really not, not ideal. Um, but I, I've also had customers use this as like a routing engine uh, to route support tickets to different geos at different times. So they, they've actually embedded us in as like a small internal tool uh, around their support queue. And so they'll look at the time, the context for them will be like the time of day, uh, who's on call, whether or not any specific teams have like PTO or other, you know, out of office events, and then dynamically route support tickets to different uh, locations and teams within an organization, which is not something I would have ever anticipated, but certainly was easy for them to build on top of the rules engine that we provide.
0: That's a really interesting one. I, I wouldn't have guessed that. But, uh, you know, whenever you have something that's useful, pretty easy to use, and it's already there, people are going to build things on top of it. So, Launch Darkly is definitely further along than some of the other companies we've had in uh, on the podcast. But I wanted to ask you about where you're going next. What do you have on your roadmap? What do you want to add to the product that it doesn't do right now? And really, you know, whatever you're willing to share about kind of the future of LaunchDarkly and, uh, you know, feature flagging, experimentation, A-B testing, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I'll share, um, I'll share a direction that we're headed and some capabilities that I, I would love to have exist in the product that, that aren't there yet. And I'll start off with uh, a bit of an analogy. So um, one of the things that we talk about Uh, in terms of the role that LaunchDarkly plays within the software development lifecycle is we describe ourselves as being able to separate deployment from release. Um, You know, in in pre-feature flags, those two steps are often the same thing. You deploy, you get an artifact onto a server, you point load, uh, your load balancers over to it, and then poof, uh, 100% of your users are seeing it. And we've said, okay, well, you can actually decouple those things, you can deploy, but then you can release capabilities or features separately. Um, And, That resonates a lot with uh, the companies that we talk to. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the natural extension of that. When you think about continuous deployment and this idea of like automated deployment, organizations moving into a world where whenever they merge to main, when things go green, uh, the the deploy happens automatically. And we've thought, what if that existed for release as well? What if uh, we could take humans out of the equation at points and instead of having these developers sitting and manually rolling out their flags from zero to 100%, we take humans out of the equation, uh, not because, um, you know, not because we don't want them there, but for because automation is in general a good thing. It takes uh, takes uh, human error out of the process. Um, and so what if we moved into a world where when you made a feature flag change, um, it was, it went through all of your environments, your staging environment, your QA environment, automatically. It got ramped up automatically according to a process that you'd defined in advance for those environments that was appropriate for those environments. And uh, so you as a developer, you, you feature flag a change and you step back. And that change is going through all of your pipelines, all the way to production through to a hundred percent rollout. And your involvement there is done until it's time to retire that flag. If it, if it is a flag that needs to be retired, and we can help you with that process. Mm -hmm. What that requires is uh, additional automation in LaunchDarkly, as well as the ability to connect to guardrails, because when you operate at that scale, uh, you need to be able to shut off a a release, a feature flag release quickly if something goes wrong. And uh, you have to do that. If if the rollout process is automated, you have to do the, the shutoff automatically as well. So you need to be able to detect when one of your core metrics is getting tanked because of a feature flag change, and then shunt that flag off, notify the developer, and go on from there. We're connecting all of those pieces together. That's kind of the next evolution of of LaunchDarkly, building automation into our A-B testing and experimentation platform, as well as our workflows uh, to enable that story to happen. At the end of the day, we want feature flagging to be something that is like continuous delivery or or deployment, um, it's not something where your whole organization is sitting around in a war room style and going like, are we ready to roll this flag out? All right, everybody ratchet it up by 3%. Everything looking good? Add two more percent. Oh no, things are going bad. Like, is it because of the flag? Let's roll back. You don't want that to be the case. You want it to be more like a ribbon cutting ceremony. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I've noticed you said that same phrase earlier, separating deploy from release. And when you said it, I noted it down. And I was like, that's a great way to think about this. Um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, you use some kind of version control and you do CI and you get a green light and your code automatically rolls out is, you know, it gets deployed to production. I love that. Um, you know, when you have great unit tests and great automated testing and all this stuff, but there's still things that can go wrong that when they go wrong, waiting for CI to build And the automatic deployment process to happen is just too slow of a response time. And so having feature flags and the ability to quickly cut things in and out are amazing. And when you put it that way, it's almost like you're saying, let's take the collaboration process that we have around source control and not just make it for deployment of an artifact, but make it for enabling and disabling features. Like the idea of having a standard... You know, it, it goes up over this percentages on these environments. And as long as no red flags are raised, it will get deployed to production at 100% in due course. And that's not up to an individual. I think that's amazing. Um, yeah. you know, it, I, 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 I had not thought about it that way until you said it, but it, it sounds like it, it makes perfect sense to me.
1: Yeah. One, one of the ways I think about it is like, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing with Agile? What are we doing with um, like the Dora metrics and, and modern software development? Most of it's about reducing batch sizes and ensuring the quality of those small batch sizes, right? Mm-hmm. What's the smallest theoretical batch size? What's even smaller than uh, deploy? You know, if you're deploying multiple times per day, it's a code pack. And the only way to really do that at that fine-grained level is through a feature flag. So we're, we're in a sense sort of like giving you control over the minimum theoretical batch size, which I think is fascinating.
0: I think it's also interesting for either when teams get really large and you have so many engineers that getting merges and deployments out into production becomes challenging. Just there's only so many hours in the day and you can only deploy so many, so many times. Or when you're dealing with an artifact-based build, say you're working on a mobile application that has to be compiled and then distributed via an app store, inevitably you're going to be shipping multiple people's, multiple teams' worth of changes in a single deployment. But that deployment is just the artifact being released, not the feature being turned on and off. And I think formalizing that can really help either big teams, you know, companies and teams that have so many changes going out that they can't manage it within the 24 hours in a day, or they're shipping out, you know, a a basically immutable artifact once a month because there's no other way to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, oftentimes when you're rolling back, you're left with this kind of like uncomfortable, frustrating situation in the pre-feature flag world where you're like, if we roll back, Yeah, that broken thing gets unshipped, but so does all the good stuff that we need. And hopefully you're not in a position where you can't roll back because whatever, maybe you did a schema or data change or something like this.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: uh, and now you're not in a position to roll back. This kind of takes that out of the equation um, where you can roll back the bad and keep all the good. Um, And that's incredibly powerful for a lot of teams.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is... um you know, knowing the audience is a bunch of developers who are interested in better tools. Um, have you seen any tools lately that you've just been really in love with that you want to share with us?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great one. I think um, if I think about it, there are a lot of like um, things that do what Darkly does in a different dimension or for a different domain that I think are fascinating. And that seems very relevant to the listeners of this podcast, because I know there's there's a focus on thinking about things in terms of like a higher level of abstraction. Um, you know, there's things like knock. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of knock this idea of like notifications is another domain where mm-hmm. you want this dynamic control routing rules, engine based behavior. Um, there's things that are doing that in the authorization space as well that I think are are really, really fascinating. Um, I, I guess that those are some of the things that come to mind or like, Who's giving you this like idea of like dynamic control in, 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 at the application layer in different domains? Um, there's another company, um, that's just getting started called impart security and they're doing this for sort of like the security space with things like routing, uh, traffic routing. Uh, like, can you do things like, um, uh, dy- like it looks kind of like a feature flag rules engine kind of situation, but it's, uh, impacting, um, uh, like traffic decisions. Uh, which I think is really fascinating.
0: And then if anybody wants to get started with LaunchDarkly, what should they do? Anything special for them to, to check out?
1: Yeah, just go to LaunchDarkly.com. It's, it's as easy as that. Um, we offer a free trial so you can get started right away. You can get access to the product without talking to a salesperson, which is, as a developer, uh, warms my heart. Um, get started right away. And uh, we've got a ton of material on sort of like how to get going with our SDKs um, and and how to, how to really uh, use the get up to speed with the practice quickly.
0: What's the support uh, situation like if I need help?
1: Uh, reach out to support. Uh, we've got uh, a couple different support channels. Um, the easiest one is just email-based support. Um, you can also, you know, I'm, I actually read Twitter very, very frequently. So, you know, we have people that just tweet support questions out and sometimes I answer them directly. Probably shouldn't say that in a podcast because I might get abused, but... Um, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, we're, we're very, very reachable. Uh, we okay. pride ourselves on the quality of our responses and the rapidity of our support responses.
0: Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll link the support information up there. I'll also put your Twitter handle in the, uh, sure. in the description as well. Um, John, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to join us and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, John.